The next lecture in this series will be on Monday, the 12th of November. John Fuggles, who is advisor for libraries to the National Trust in England, will be speaking on the library in the English country house, primarily of the 18th century. The night is always darkest just before the dawning, and the light directly above me has gone out. Those of you who are regulars here know that this room is scheduled for major renovations sometime this fall. And I hope you will all put up, as so many of you have been putting up for so long, with construction on this floor of the library, which must end sometime. There's very little left that needs reconstructing at this point. There will be a reception immediately following this lecture for all those who attend it. And the more adventurous of the other students in the library school in room 502, Butler Library, which is immediately down the hall and down the hall and down the hall. And I hope that all of you will join the speaker for a glass of wine and informal conversation. Our speaker this evening, as you know, is Stephen Erkowitz, Associate Professor of English at Hofstra University, who is speaking on voodoo bibliography. And the implications of that are about to be made manifest. It's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Erkowitz to this podium. Thank you. Uh, the light being off is significant. Uh, couldn't have planned it better myself. Right now, in the midst of what has been called a revolution in Shakespearean textual studies, I feel rather like Jonah inside his whale. By groping around inside my enclosure, I can guess pretty much the shape and dimensions of this particular revolutionary gullet, but I have very little idea about where the whale is headed. Uh, I would like to give you a rough idea of only one of the current problems debated inside here. Uh, reporting on some of my own very recent findings about the history of this issue. But I warn you at the outset that I have been swallowed, uh, and that tends to color the perceptions of even the most objectively scientific observer. Uh, Shakespeare has long been recognized as one of the most creative, innovative, experimental, and theatrically inventive playwrights. But for more than 300 years, editors of his plays have been debating just what to do with a wonderful but nevertheless disturbing legacy of the earliest printed texts of these plays. Shakespeare wrote 37 plays. 18 of them first reached print in the great first folio edition of his works, published in 1623. 19 reached print first in, as inexpensive single play editions, usually in quarto format. From the time they first began appearing in 1595 and intermittently thereafter, these quartos were reprinted frequently. Some of the earliest quarto texts were followed by very different versions of the same plays printed in later quartos or in the first folio. For example, the 16.3 first quarto uh, text of Hamlet has a king's advisor named Corambus. The 16.5 second quarto edition of Hamlet is about twice as long as the 16.3 version, radically varies the plot and thematic concerns found in the first quarto, and has the king's counselor under the name we now know him, Polonius. And the 16.23 first folio text of Hamlet introduces more changes, 
primarily in wording, stage action, and the fine details of characterization. Explaining the sources of differences such as these in the three Hamlet texts brings Shakespearean textual scholars into conflict. Is the first quarter of Hamlet Shakespeare's first surviving version of the play? Or is it a corrupt product of other hands who pirated Shakespeare's work as best they could and peddled their version as if it were authentic? Did Shakespeare revise his plays? Or did he compose them in a single effort and then leave them to the vagaries of theatrical revisers and adapters? Is there one Shakespearean Hamlet distorted by transmission into three alternative texts? Or are there three Shakespearean Hamlets representing stages of the playwright's revising process? For the last half century, one group of scholars seemed to establish a firm and orthodox procedure for analyzing and editing Shakespeare's plays, including both the single text plays and also those with alternative texts. Led by A.W. Pollard, uh, R.W. McCarrow, and W.W. Gregg, these scholars concentrated on the quartos and folio as manufactured objects, the products of the book trade. They learned about the changes that typesetters and printers imposed on the manuscript copy that they had, that they had to work from, and they showed that many characteristics of Shakespearean printed texts derive from the printing process itself rather than from the author's underlying manuscripts. For example, they demonstrated conclusively that many spelling practices were peculiar to the individual compositors that typeset the plays, and spelling was liable to change when a different man was at the typecase. The analytic program devised by McCarrow, Pollard, and Gregg, and others came to be known as the New Bibliography, and its elegance and rigor led, to, led its practitioners to the head of textual scholarship in England and America during the early decades of the 20th century. As I said, the analytic tools of the new bibliography had great power to discern the kinds of changes imposed on an author's manuscript by the printing process. An editor could recover details of lost manuscript by comparing the changes found in successive editions of a book, and an editor could discover which of several alternative printings was closest to the author's manuscript. The techniques were painstaking, uh, as I imagine you all know, uh, but the results they produced seemed reliable, scientifically verifiable, and aesthetically satisfying. We could get closer to the author's original intentions by scraping away the successive veils overlaid by the printing process. Serious practitioners of the new bibliograph bibliographical technique warned themselves, however, that their methods seriously distorted an investigator's perceptions if any of the textual changes between editions had been generated not by a worker in the printing house, but rather by the author revising the copy underlying the variant texts. If an author were responsible for alternative readings, then an editor's task would shift radically. Rather than clearing up the, the printer's changes and restoring the author's words, the editor of a text with authorial revisions has an embarrassment of riches. Should an editor print the earliest text, or the latest, or the most aesthetically pleasing? Or should the editor or a team of editors find a way to print all the versions for the reader? For a variety of reasons, few of which are now very clear, when they came to edit 
Shakespeare's manuscript, multiple text plays, the major figures of the new bibliography concluded that the multiple versions resulted from problems of transmission rather than from authorial revision. In order to explain the textual variants which abounded in these multiple text plays, the new bibliographers developed complex scenarios describing the transmogrifications of what they proposed were the single original manuscripts written by Shakespeare. The radically variant texts, such as those of Hamlet, King Lear, Richard III, Henry V, Merry Wives of Windsor, and others, the bibliographers argued, took their different forms because non-authorial agents, such as theatrical adapters, theatrical pirates, and revising actors distorted the single originals. Explanations such as these have been offered by editors since the first folio edition itself, and such explanations form the stuff of editorial debates since the 18th century. But it is most important to note, and I cannot stress this too highly for it is the source of the primary conflict and the current turmoil, that the explanatory scenarios suggested by the new bibliographers have nothing in common with their own careful work on the manufacturing processes of the Renaissance English printing houses. Rather, the romantic and involuted stories of theatrical pirates and memorizing journeyman actors continued exactly the personal and idiosyncratic methods of editorial reasoning which their, which their bibliographic analysis of the book as physical object had so successfully supplanted. Before the new bibliographers achieved their deserved prominence, editors had vigorously disputed the question of authorial revision versus playhouse contamination or illicit transcription. Many highly reputable editors felt that Shakespeare was a revising artist responsible for many of the textual variants in his plays. But until the recent revolutionary excursions, for the half century after the new bibliographers took over the field, since the late 1920s, no editor and very few critics have advanced the theory that Shakespeare revised the texts we have. The current revolution in Shakespearean textual studies attempts to be bibliographically conservative. The critics involved are trying to separate the highly reliable and disciplined technical legacy of the new bibliography from the unfortunately reductive and idiosyncratic hypotheses describing non-bibliographic interveners in the transmission process. Now, to make sense out of the current conflicts, I want to review for you some of the recent work that I've been involved with a survey of the major arguments for memorial reconstruction in Shakespearean multiple text plays. In the 18th and 19th centuries, some editors argued that texts such as the first quarter of Hamlet and the first quarter of Henry V were printed from illicit manuscripts. They suggested that someone with a good memory or a journeyman actor who played small roles in a production during performances would memorize the dialogue as recited and then later copy it out. This hypothesized process came to be known among its proponents as memorial reconstruction. W.W. Gregg presented a major analysis of the bibliographic problems of a Shakespearean multiple text play in his 1910 edition of the first quarto, quarto of Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor. With the marvelous self-confidence available to Englishmen before World War I, 
uh, Greg assumes without question that his basic premises are unchallengeable. According to Greg, we have two texts of the Merry Wives. The folio is authentic, representing Shakespeare's main intentions, garbled only slightly on the way from manuscript, uh, on, on, the manu on the way from manuscript to stage production to the press. And the quarto is spurious, a pirated version concocted from memory by agents of a rapacious printer. How does Greg know that the quarto is not an authorial draft, does not rep is not drawn from an authorial draft? He does not compare the differences between the quarto and the folio with extant authorial revisions. And he does not look at the, pseudo at the multiple texts of works by modern writers to see how other fluent authors revise. Had he done so, he would have, would have been forced to admit that the textual differences between the two editions of Merry Wives look exactly like those authorial revisions found in the works of Ben Jonson, Thomas Middleton, of Keats, for example, or Dickens, or George Bernard Shaw. Instead, Greg tells us how he convinced himself that the quarto was written by an illicit reporter. Supposing the version, I'm sorry, I can't imitate Greg because I never had the opportunity to hear him. So this is um, my, my voice for Greg through England through the Bronx, and it's the best I can. Okay, it's not authentic. Okay. Supposing the version performed on stage in 1601 to have been in substantial agreement with the extant folio text, a very few visits to the theater would have enabled a pirate of even moderate parts or experience to vamp up such a text as the quarto in general supplies. In making this assertion, I am not speaking without book, for I have tried the experiment myself. It happened that after four visits to John Bull's other island, I was called upon to give some account of the piece for strictly private entertainment, and I found that I was able to reproduce all the material parts of the dialogue sufficiently accurately to convey the idea of the play which was not seriously modified by subsequent re reading. I do not pretend that my impromptu version approaches verbal accuracy, while there were certain portions for which I relied on narrative summary. Had occasion demanded, however, I could easily have thrown these into doubtless inferior dialogue, and I am fairly confident that the, that the total result would have approximated to the subsequently published play not less closely, I hope a good deal more closely, than the quarto of Merry Wives does to the folio text. After I, I had seen the play five or six times, I tried the further experiment of writing out from memory the passage of Act Four from the departure of Barney Doran and his gang to the exit of Aunt Judy, pages, 80, pages 86 to 92 of the printed text. I had paid no special attention to this scene, but merely selected it as being a clearly defined episode which had struck my fancy on the stage. I still possess this reconstruction of mine and have since collated it with the printed text. I think it will compare favorably with any scene of the quarto which can reasonably be paralleled with it in extent, 
John Bull's Other Island is considerably longer than the full text of Merry Wives, and I had no, and I had no previous experience whatever in the art of dramatic piracy. On the other hand, I must admit that interest is a powerful agent in impressing dialogue on the memory, and I can hardly imagine anyone as being as intensely interested by the Merry Wives as I was by my first introduction to the work of the most dazzling of our modern playwrights. End of quote. <laughs> uh, I, as I was reading this over, I was struck by the rhythms of this and some of the some of the rhetorical moves, they, they are precisely those that the uh, narrative voice in uh, Swift's modest proposal uses. I, I, someday I will collate those texts. <laughs> Greg's endearing story and his exuberant delight in George Bernard Shaw's new play seems to have blinded him and later critics to the differences between his experiment and normal bibliographic discourse. As far as I can tell, Greg never printed his own reported text, so we cannot tell if the quality of the differences between it and Shaw's were at all like those between the hypothetical pirates and Shakespeare's Merry Wives. Greg insists that we trust his judgment, a risky deal in any scholarly dispute. First, Greg neglects to mention that Elizabethan plays were presented in a season of rolling repertory. Except for, an, in, except for extraordinary cases, a play would be given only half dozen to, uh, half dozen to a dozen times during a during whole season. Whole season. A pirate not retiring the night tonight to do the same thing over and over again as Greg viewed John Bull's Other Island. Next, Greg fails to consider seriously all of the radical and systematic variations in the plot, in the characterizations, and in the literary style found between the quarto and folio. In his discussion, he misreads the quarto as being irredeemably corrupt, where in fact it is tentative and exploratory, like an author's first drafts. Further, the vocabulary of the quarto shows no signs of having been filtered through a pirate's memory. All the words and grammatical constructions resemble Shakespeare's elsewhere in his writing. And repeatedly, we find expressions in the quarto different from the folio, but just as linguistically inventive and delightful as those in Shakespeare's other writings. Greg's arguments work convincingly as long as they are not checked against, ex against alternative explanations of the same data, and as long as they are not tested against other relevant theatrical and literary documents. And Greg's argumentative method in his memorial reconstruction hypothesis in no way resembles the technical analysis on which his extraordinary and merited reputation depends. His case is charming. It still convinces most critics today, but it remains simply as a personal testament of Greg's own belief. Thirteen years after his edition of Merry Wives, uh, Greg published another influential study of the problem of variant versions of Elizabethan play scripts called uh, Two Elizabethan Stage Abridgments. Again, the primary techniques of analysis he uses are his personal literary opinions of textual variants, 
I do not have the time to go over this work in any detail, but one example of Greg's method will give some indication of its limitations. Working from a text which he hypothesizes was a memorial reconstruction, Greg at one point extrapolates back to what he feels must have been the lost original form of a passage. This is a heady exercise in playwriting, rather like his adventure with John Bull's Other Island 13 years earlier. As a fledgling playwright, Greg discovers that he has written himself into a technical corner. He has a character lying dead on the stage, alone, but he needs the actor who plays the character to get off stage in order to, uh, in order to change costume and appear in a new role shortly after the beginning of the next scene. So, Greg argues that a traverse curtain may be drawn to hide the actor who then rises up, heads for the dressing room, and prepares for his next entrance. Unfortunately, neither Greg nor any of the readers of his landmark analysis of these crucial documents has ever considered that English theaters had no traverse curtains until well into the 18th century, nor had they anywhere to hang such an object. and a thrust stage, there was nowhere to suspend a traverse curtain. Uh, now, he also could have suggested a momentary blackout uh, in the theater, uh, but that had other problems in a theater uh, illuminated only by daylight. <laughs> However fine Greg's work on printed books has been, his understanding of theatrical staging, theatrical dialogue, and the exigencies of theatrical scripting is amateurish, constrained by his own familiarity with theaters of his own time, and completely misleading as a source of textual analysis for variant texts of Elizabethan and Jacobean play scripts. Peter Alexander's study of textual variants in the second and third parts of Henry VI and Richard III published in 1929, made the next major addition to the memorial reconstruction argument. Alexander's primary contribution was to recover these plays as whole units of Shakespeare's writing. Most critics at the time were parceling great chunks of these plays out to the hands of other playwrights rather than Shakespeare. But once Alexander turned to analyze the variance between the quarto and folio texts, he fell into serious problems of his own. Alexander argues that the earliest printed versions of 2 and 3 Henry VI and Richard III were pirated. As evidence, Alexander presents the case of pirated versions of plays of Richard Brinsley Sheridan printed in England almost 200 years after Shakespeare, after the Shakespearean texts he is discussing. Sheridan's play, The Duenna, indeed was memorially reconstructed by a player who had performed in the London cast and we have both the authorial form of the play and the reconstruction. However, we also happen to have Sheridan's revisions of his own earlier versions of his plays. When we compare the author's early text and the author's later text, we find that they contain exactly the kinds of changes noticed between the quarto and the folio versions of 2 and 3 Henry VI and Richard III. And when we compare the pirated text of Sheridan's play, The Duenna, and the author's published text, 
we see that they don't look at all like the alternative authorial forms of either Sheridan's plays or the Shakespearean texts in question. Work on the Sheridan piracies and on the, Sherid on the Sheridan authorial revisions proceeded through the 1930s, but oddly enough, Alexander's erroneously drawn analogies have not been corrected by later Shakespearean editors working on these plays. Alexander also makes elaborate claims about errors in the historical accuracy of the earliest printed versions of these history plays. Alexander isolates passages where the folio versions of the plays get the history correctly and the quartos stray from the historical sources that Shakespeare is known to have used. He therefore concludes that the accurate folio is original and authorial, while the, erroneous, the historically erroneous quartos must be derivative and tainted by piratical memorial error. Alexander's case demands that we accept two subsidiary but undiscussed claims. First, we must assume that an author could not make an error in historical fact in a first draft and then later correct it in a final version. We have no justification for such an assumption. A playwright who is also a performing member of a touring acting company, as Shakespeare was, might use time away from his books to write out first drafts of his history plays and then correct them when he returned home. The second edition of Hollinshed's Chronicles, known to have been Shakespeare's source for these history plays, tips the scales at 14 pounds. Scarcely a convenient vade mecum. <laughs> Second, Alexander implies that the folio is always closer to the historical sources than are the supposedly derivative quartos. But Geoffrey Bullock, the editor of the Narrative and Dramatic Sources of Shakespeare, discovers several passages where the quarto text is more accurate, closer to the chronicles than the folio. This creates a bizarre scenario if we are to adhere to the memorial reconstruction hypothesis. The pirates, according to Alexander, must have had greater familiarity with the chronicles than the playwright, and they chose to correct his errors on these occasions, even though in other spots they distorted the same history through their ignorance. Of course, a conscious artist working from his own early drafts may choose to move away from his source for dramatic for may choose to move away from his source for dramatic or literary effect just as he may decide to correct an inaccuracy in an earlier version if he should so please like greg alexander gets caught up in highly subjective literary analysis of his variant texts he must demonstrate that one version is good and authorial while the other is bad and pirated Looking at the alternative versions of the end of 2 Henry VI, for example, Alexander says, in the last two scenes, for example, there are 20 lines which are very similar in the corresponding parts in the folio. The rest is rubbish. Simply reading through the quarto scenes, which Alexander calls rubbish, reveals a scenic structure radically different from that in the folio, but by any standard, exciting drama. In Shakespearean diction, illustrating purely Shakespearean Im imagery, verse forms, characterization, and stage action. Alexander's case for memorial reconstruction, like Gregg's, uses none of the disciplined and verifiable methodologies of the new bibliography. 
The next major work, there are not, I will only waltz you through a few of these. Uh, I spent uh, the last eight months uh, in a mind-bending exercise of reading through the memorial reconstruction arguments in the 20th century. Uh, I do not recommend it. Uh, the next major work on memorial reconstruction illustrates another aspect of the confusion generated within this tradition. D.L. Patrick applies the same personal style of analysis to the variant text of Richard III. Repeatedly, he tries to show that the quarto version is awkward, amputated, or derivative, while the folio is graceful, complete, and authorial. I'd like to look at one of the amputated passages from the quarto Richard III to indicate just how wild and difficult this memorial reconstruction game can become. In a gruesome moment of Grand Guignol farce, the severed head of the jolly Lord Chamberlain, uh, Hastings, gets delivered to Richard and Buckingham while they're trying to convince the mayor of London that the city is in great danger. It's a very ugly scene. I mean, they carry in the head, they dance around with it. It's okay. The folio text has two men, Lovell and Radcliffe, bearing the grisly object. But the quarto gives it to only one, Catesby. The prior relationship between the historical characters of Catesby and Jolly Hastings, as reported in the Chronicles, leads D.L. Patrick to declare that the quarto had to be written by blundering pirates. Quote, Catesby was an intimate friend of Hastings, and making him executioner, the adapter, the person who made the changes, the adapter showed a lack of historical knowledge of which it is unnecessary to accuse Shakespeare. <laughs> Unfortunately for Patrick's argument, he relied on a modern edited version of the Hollandshed's chronicle histories rather than checking the early printed forms for, them, for himself. Or the in, rather, rather than checking the early printed forms themselves. Wanting to check Patrick's examples, I took down my own copy of the Everyman Library text called Shakespeare's Hollandshed, edited by Allardyce Nicole. I found the passage referred, referring to the friendship between Catesby and Jolly Hastings, and indeed saw that Catesby was a longtime protege of Hastings. But then I noticed that the Everyman text indicated that the next paragraph which it quoted appeared on the following page in the Chronicle History there seemed to be an ellipsis, material left out. Having lived through the Watergate period, um, this made me somewhat suspicious of material that might have been excerpted, even for the best of reasons. The complete text, which I found in Hollandshead, tells much more of the story of Catesby and Hastings, and in fact reverses Patrick's interpretation of the passage in the early quarto. Catesby, we learn, had been suborned by Richard, and fearful of being found out, Catesby himself urged Richard to rid him, to execute his master and protector, Hastings. The Chronicle explains further that Catesby, quote, trusted by his death, that is Hastings' death, to obtain much of the rule that the Lord Hastings bear in his country. The only desire whereof was the uh, elect 
motive that induced him to be the partner and one special contriver of all this horrible treason. The full text from Holland said makes the quarto look like a typically Shakespearean compression of narrative into a single vivid uh, theatrical emblem. The trusted client, Catesby, suborned by Richard, carries in his former master's bloody head. The folio version moves further away from the narrative source, but it, but it introduces more elaborate theatrical display in the moments immediately preceding the entry of the head. By trusting the modern edited texts of Hollandshead, D.L. Patrick winds himself into confusion. The historical documents reinforce the possibility that Shakespeare revised Richard III and undermine the hypothesis of memorial reconstruction. Like Greg on Merry Wives and like Alexander on the Henry VI plays, Patrick's work also is still cited as the major authoritative discussion of the textual problem in Richard III. If I may step out of my chronological survey for the moment, I'd like to point out a truly bizarre aspect of this fascinating charade. When I started reading reviews and contemporary estimates of these same studies, uh, these same studies of Memorial Reconstruction, I was astonished to find that many people in the field simply haven't read them at all. An illustrative story. W.W. Gregg reviewed Patrick's book on Richard III. The review is alarmingly brief, superficial, and misleading. In the review, Gregg claims to disagree with Patrick about just how and why the supposed memorial reconstruction in the quarto was carried out. Gregg writes, the report was prepared not only from representation, but for representation. It was made not with a view to printing, but to acting. A reader of the review would believe that Patrick had argued otherwise, perhaps that the piracy was commissioned by a printer. But indeed, Patrick has an entire 10-page chapter addressing exactly this issue. The title of the chapter and its running headline boldly declare the quarto and acting version. And Patrick's ensuing argument in the chapter and in his conclusion suggests that the acting company worked together to generate a missing prompt book for a touring version. Greg's review offers Patrick's own conclusions as if they were Greg's correction of Patrick's contrary opinion. This is disturbing. <laughs> Not fair. You know, an error which surely should have been corrected in a half century of Shakespearean textual editing. But has this correction happened? Let's see. Anthony Hammond's recent New Arden edition of Richard III accepts Patrick as a source of the contemporary view of the Richard III text. But he tells us about Gregg's important influence as well. Quote, Greg, in his review of Patrick, proposed the view which has been universally accepted since, namely that the text was collaboratively prepared by the company in order to replace a missing prompt book. End quote. Hammond accepts Greg's authority for what Patrick said rather than Patrick's own testimony. Did Hammond read Patrick's book? I cannot tell. I will pass over one of the nastier of 
memorial reconstruction cases, which is also the largest, runs about 700 pages, Alfred Hart's book with a wonderful title, Stolen and Surreptitious Copies. Uh, I'll mention only one thing. He says that uh, one of the reasons that the earliest printed texts uh, had so many strange spellings uh, was that they were, these were the way Shakespeare's words were, were pronounced, mispronounced, by the ignorant, ill-educated mummers who were in Shakespeare's company. He also called them stupid mummers. Uh, he talks about uh, Shakespeare often has to write elaborate exit uh, lines because the stupid mummer cannot find a way to get off the stage gracefully. <laughs> uh, I pass over Hart. Okay. The final example of the major memorial reconstruction arguments that I will present is Georgian Duthie, uh, the bad quarto of Hamlet, a critical study. This is at once the best and the silliest product of the work in the field. Despite its nearly universal acceptance by contemporary editors, Duthie illustrates the limiting conceptual framework, the circularity of argument, and the failure of theatrical imagination found in all memorial reconstruction discourse. Duthie's method is to find passages in the earliest quarto which, he says, because of their confusion and because of their resemblances to other distant passages in the later, in the later texts, could not have been written by Shakespeare and must have been assembled by a memorizing actor. Duthie's memorizing actor must simultaneously forget the genuine text and dredge up a suitable but clumsy approximation or substitution for it. Duthie finds that the first quarter of Hamlet contains passages remembered by its pirate from Henry V and from earlier and later sections of Shakespeare's Hamlet. And uh, here is a neat illustration of Duthie explaining his pirate at work. Uh, and this I have to copy out a very this is a very brief passage from uh, the first quarto of Hamlet. I hold it meet if it's so. T-H-E-Y. I used to know how to spell. Okay. Uh, this continues on the same line. slide this. This is going to be okay. It's an interesting, interesting staging problem of how I'm going to juggle through here, but okay. Uh, this is Duffy's explanation of, of the confusions in this passage. At one point, 
in Q1, scene 8, which is Act 3, scene 1, the meter breaks down seriously and the text becomes incoherent. The lines in which the Q1 text deteriorate so strikingly run, and then he cites this. Duthie observes, oh, wonderful, thank you. Ah, a movable piece. I will try, I will try not to trip over the wires. Duthie observes that the repeated word meet appears once in, a, in an equivalent passage from Act 3, Scene 3 in the second quarto, and that the word meeting also appears once in Polonius's part in Act 2, Scene 3 from the second quarto version. Therefore, Duthie argues, quote, having remembered meet in one sense from Act 3, Scene 3, the reporter immediately remembers the same word in the same sense from Act 2, Scene 2. And that's how he led from this meet to that meet. Neither of these are in the, uh, are in the second quarto, supposedly the only real Shakespearean version. Duthie searches out other distantly scattered words and phrases from the second quarto, which he says, it is clear and probably, and it is therefore all the more likely and quite possibly, thrust themselves into the reporter's text. Duthie resoundingly concludes, it is now quite obvious that in the passages with which we have been concerned, the Q1 text is a patchwork of words and phrases, quite often commonplace, remembered from widely separated sources in the full play. And then he moves on to the next passage to analyze. The thing that he's most upset about, most problematic, is this, and thus it is which is a conclusion, it seems to be a conclusion or the beginning of something else, but it's not at all, it's a non sequitur. If I had, if I could give you more of this, this passage, you would see that it, it simply does not work at all. Uh, the character speaking this is, is uh, Corambus, who is the Polonius character uh, in the first quarter, it's the same character but with a different name in the first quarter. Uh, and so after he gives us this, this discussion, uh, he moves on to the next passage to, to analyze. But in his excitement about finding distant analogs and sources for the Q1 passage, Duthie slips past the problem which he called our for which he called our attention to this section initially, namely the deterioration evident in the non sequitur, and thus it is. Duthie does not pause to consider how his reporter could have left such a smudge just when his mind was so active and adeptly weaving together all those snips and pieces. How could the reporter have been so good at remembering and patching and yet so poor at recognizing his own blunder? If we draw back only slightly to get a broader view of the context of Duthie's passage, we can see that this momentary incoherence was noticed by a sharp-eyed critic 340 years before Duthie labored over it. The next line in in the uh, quarto text reads like this. It is a speech for the king. It says, 
what is it, Corambus? <laughs> okay. The supposedly textual corruption represents a purposefully scripted delineation of Corambus's character. You remember Polonius uh, forgets things. He forgets what he's saying in the middle of a speech. You know, he forgets the beginning of a speech in the middle of a speech. Uh, but clearly what, it, what happens, those of you who've written papers on, and taken notes on note cards, uh, what, uh, what Duthie must have done was gone through the text looking for confused passages, copied out, he said, ah, that doesn't make sense, <laughs> copied out his confused passage and gone on and worked only from, uh, from his note cards. Uh, tells you something about note cards. Throughout his analysis, Duthie's arguments depend on his own extremely limited capacities as a reader of theatrical texts. Instead of bibliographical argument, we find idiosyncratic literary taste. Duthie's work, like those who argue in the same mode, depends on the ways that he discriminates between alternative readings of dramatic scripts. But he and his fellows demonstrate repeatedly repeatedly that the veil of type. Once learned, the hard crafts of the typesetter and papermaker, the pressman and binder, could be lifted away so that we could contemplate the author's throbbing, luminous manuscript. Pollard and McCarrow, Greg, Alexander, Patrick, Hart, Duffy, and others worked mightily but they could not accept the idea that behind the variant texts of Shakespeare's multiple text plays, there may in fact lie imperfect documents, messy with the throes of revision and exigent alteration for practical theatrical demands. They could not associate their supreme poet with the knockabout world of box offices and grease paint, so they refused to consider him as a revising poet. With all the fierce adulation of true believers, these men and those they influenced with a missionary zeal successfully suppressed almost all discussion of Shakespeare as a revising artist. Careful and systematic analyses refuting memorial reconstruction and advocating the consideration of Shakespeare as a revising artist were first dismissed abruptly then silently dropped from the bibliographies and surveys of scholarship, and finally ignored in later discourse. Against the tough grain of established practice, recent work on the multiple texts of King Lear seems to be making some significant impact. My own book, Shakespeare's Revision of King Lear, prompted much surprised assent. People who had not known what the Memorial Reconstruction Establishment had promulgated found themselves relieved and excited by the possibility that Shakespeare indeed revised the text of King Lear. At the moment, we seem to be in the initial stages of a large-scale reassessment of this one play. Many of the most influential editors, however, have forcefully and predictably rejected my work and others like it. They do not feel we've proved our case for Lear. The time ahead will not be easy. Five years ago, however, the, publish, the publication of my book was accomplished only because of the incredible generosity of one scholar, G. Blakemore Evans. 
Though he disagreed with my findings, he felt they should be heard. Only one university press out of the 18 to which I submitted the manuscript was willing to venture a reading. Michael Warren, the scholar who first proposed the new theory about King Lear in the, at the 1976 World Shakespeare Congress, when he later submitted his paper for publication, received an, received an anonymous critique saying, this paper must never see print anywhere. <laughs> An earlier critic who in the 1960s proposed a challenge to the, uh, to the memorial reconstruction theory was told by the head of the Folger Shakespeare Library over lunch one day at the Folger, if you ever publish these lies, I will personally shred your work in the pages of Shakespeare Quarterly. And a relatively minor submission of my own came back a few months ago with a declaration, this kind of thing must, underline must, be discouraged. In the sciences, even the most elementary students learn their craft by repeating the experiences of earlier generations of scientists. Students learn standards of scholarly integrity and the inexplicable flavor of a proof by repeating the gestures first learned by the great pioneers of their fields. As an engineering student at City College, I learned to believe in the validity of physics not by faith, not by faith in my teachers or trust in the authorities in the field, but rather by stretching a Hooke's Law spring and by measuring the electrical charge on an electron and the wavelength of a sodium vapor light. But in Shakespearean bibliographical studies today, students are not testing the arguments and conclusions of their predecessors. No graduate student tries to reproduce Gregg's experiment or Duthie's analysis. Instead, they are encouraged to trust an antique and incomprehensible model, much like Ptolemy's astronomy. Monolithic Shakespeare creating single original texts of his plays at the fixed immovable center and gangs of strangely ephemeral pirates <laughs> dancing in complicated epicycles and epicycles generating their textual variants. The revolution in Shakespearean textual studies has begun. It proceeds slowly. I think it has very far to go. From inside the belly of the whale, I know only that it is alive and swimming strongly. I don't know onto what beach I may be thrown up to tell my tale. Thank you.